The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. So I had a bit of a logistical problem, which we have solved, and that had to do with Damian Avery and what scripture he should read this morning. Uh, We are covering 22 chapters of Revelation, so it seemed good to give him the beginning and the end, or else, by my estimation, we'd still be in scripture reading right now, and it would be lasting about 50 minutes, something like that. And I'd be free from having to write a sermon, so we would just listen to the entire book of Revelation. Uh, This morning, what I want to do is I want to go over in this, the final sermon that I'll preach to you in the book of Revelation, somewhat of a panoramic view of this book. This is my 50th sermon in this series, almost a year of preaching uh, by the weeks. And we have walked through line by line every chapter. And now I think it's beneficial for us to look back where we have been. I remember some years ago, my son Nathaniel and I were hiking in the White Mountains And we hiked up Mount Washington, which is the highest mountain in New Hampshire. And the most prominent uh, mountain, there's a definition of prominence, but the most prominent mountain east of the Mississippi River. A very spectacular view on Mount Washington, if the weather will permit. We went up the Tuckerman Ravine Trail, and as often the case uh, on that mountain, the weather was inclement. It It was actually terrible weather. It was foggy and drizzly. And I was personally frustrated. Nathaniel had never been up that trail before, but I knew what he was missing. And I was praying that the weather could just clear a little bit. Uh, Up there, there's something called the tree line. You don't see that here in the mountains in North Carolina. But there, there's a certain height above which trees don't grow. And just, it gives you an incredible view of the entire region. And you can get that especially from Mount Washington. Well, it just so happened in the course of time that just for a few minutes, the fog and the clouds cleared enough. And we could see down into the Mount Washington Valley. We could see for miles And it was really spectacular. You could see hundreds and hundreds of thousands of trees. And you could see sparkling lakes and rivers. And you could see other mountains. Just for maybe about 10 minutes it cleared. It was a panoramic view of the entire valley, however briefly it lasted. It was an unveiling of majesty that God has created. And it was breathtaking. And from that lofty perch, you know, we could see for miles and miles. And see all of these things before the fog uh, closed back in. So that's the image that I have as we look this morning one last time at the entire book of Revelation, that we would get a panoramic view of this incredible book, the final book in the Bible. And from our vantage point, having been line by line, chapter by chapter, through all of these uh, teachings, that we would have an unveiling of the hidden truths of the book. Now that word unveiling, that's what revelation literally means in the Greek, also in the English. It's a pulling back of a veil. The apocalypsis, the removal of a veil, so that we can see invisible, hidden spiritual realities. And that's what faith is, the eyesight of the soul by which we can see invisible spiritual realities. Past, present, future. We can see it all by faith based on the Word of God. Perhaps another image for this sermon today comes from years ago. John MacArthur preached a sermon entitled, Jet Tour Through the Book of Revelation. I think if you go to the Grace to You website, you can still listen to it. And he goes through the entire book of Revelation in about 75 minutes. 
So I want you to rest easy about this sermon, okay? I'm not going to take 75 minutes. I want you to look at the outline, and I want to tell you that three-quarters of the sermon will be time-wise in the first part. So when we get to like quarter of noon, and I haven't begun those seven things, don't be anxious. We're, We're right on schedule. I'm just going to be touching on those seven themes very quickly, very quickly. I love that idea of a jet tour through the book of Revelation, uh, a flyover, if you could imagine. Some years ago, I visited the largest mall in, in America. It was in Minneapolis. It's actually called the Mall of America. And it wasn't there then, but since that time, they have built a flight simulator IMAX combination. And you can do this thing called Flyover America. And it's actually a, a combination ride and movie theater. And uh, it takes you through about an hour trip through over the United States to some key spectacles that you can see. Uh, National parks, Grand Canyon, Grand Tetons, the the Mississippi River. You fly over it. And and they call it a full immersion experience because they actually include wind and mist and various weather patterns. And even aromas get sprayed at you. So I don't know if everybody would find that pleasing. I'm not going to try to do anything like that today. You can imagine a full immersion experience flying over these 22 chapters. But I don't even know that you would want something like that because of the, uh, the topics that are covered in the book of Revelation. It's a, in some ways a terrifying book. When the prophet Daniel had some of his visions in the book of Daniel, he was left almost half alive, almost speechless, breathless, literally lying on the ground. After, for example, in Daniel 8, having a very specific prophecy of the coming of Alexander the Great, at the end of that prophecy, it says in Daniel 8, 27, I, Daniel, was exhausted and lay ill for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. So I can't give you that full immersion experience if God himself were to pour into your souls vividly the kind of things that he gave to John or to Daniel. You would be similarly, I think, laid out on the ground, barely able to breathe. So we're going to walk through the entire book. I'm going to give you an overview of more or less of the the 22 chapters. And then I'm going to pull out at the end seven themes that I think will organize the whole thing. And it begins in chapter 1, verse 1 with the purpose statement. And what it is that God is doing in this book. And I would urge you just follow along if you choose to. Or you can just listen as we just walk through consecutive order in the book of Revelation. But Revelation 1.1. The revelation or the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. So there you have the two central topics of Revelation. It is Jesus Christ who is unveiled before us. So we see things about Christ we would have no other way of knowing. And then also the future is unveiled. It's a future book, things that must soon take place. Now, the ultimate author of this book is Almighty God, and the human author of this book is the Apostle John. It says again in verse 1 and then on into verse 2, He, God, made it known by sending His angel to His servant John, who testifies to everything that he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So God the Father gave the revelation of Jesus. Jesus gave it through the Spirit to an angel. The angel gave it to John and John gave it to us. 
So God is the ultimate author of the book of Revelation, mediated to us through Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit, through an angel, through John to us. And in verse 4 and 5, there is an ascription to the triune God, or actually uh, a greeting from the triune God in verse 4 and 5. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. That's Almighty God. And from the sevenfold spirit, I think that's a better translation, a set, the sevenfold spirit before his throne, that's the Holy Spirit, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So there is grace and peace to you, greetings from the triune God here in this book of Revelation. And there are, as we've seen a moment ago, blessings attached to the reading of this book. Look at verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. So we are blessed in our study of this book. There's a blessing connected with it. Now, the rest of Revelation chapter 1 is a vision of the resurrected, glorified Christ moving through the seven golden lampstands. He is dressed like a priest. So you get the picture of the high priestly ministry of Jesus. And the seven golden lampstands represent seven local churches in the province of Asia. Asia is modern-day Turkey. They were actual churches, literal churches, that were uh, planted and were growing or thriving or struggling in John's day. But they represent all local churches in all geographical locations and throughout all eras of church history. The number seven being the number of perfection or completion. And so they are relevant uh, to all of us. They are golden lampstands in that they are indescribably valuable to God, the local churches. And that they are set up on a lampstand to give light to everyone in the house. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. And so we are called on to be lights shining in our locality, our geographical location. Jesus walking in and amongst them shows his active, continual ministry to the local churches of the world, around the world. He is continually aware of them and ministering to them and trimming their wicks and ruling over them and studying them and addressing them. Revelation 2 and 3 are the letters to the seven churches from Jesus. And so Jesus speaks to the seven churches, and through the seven churches speaks to all of us as, lo as a local church, but also speaking to us as individual Christians. And John is commanded to write down the words of Jesus Christ to each church, and each church is commanded to read not only its own letter, but the letters of all the other churches as well. And so through that doorway, then we Christians read all seven letters, and we are spoken to and addressed. The letters show that Christ knows in perfect detail what is happening in each of the local churches around the world. He evaluates the churches in terms of their opportunities and their dangers and their performance, their deeds. I know your deeds. The ways that they please him and the ways that they displease him. In every case, he appeals to individual Christians within those local churches. He calls on individuals within those churches to overcome satanic attacks, to be overcomers and to live victorious lives in their circumstances by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he promises rewards to those who will overcome. To him who overcomes, he gives rewards. In the end, all local churches are temporary. 
They are like scaffolding on the real temple or the real church that's being built. All of them are temporary. But the individuals within those local churches are eternal. Now, from the cumulative lesson of the seven churches, we are exhorted to labor diligently for the gospel in our community. We are called on to work hard for the gospel and for the lost in our community. We are exhorted to expose false teaching and refute it. We are exhorted to be sexually pure and to not tolerate sin in our lives or in our local church. We are told to stand firm in times of persecution. We are told to perceive open doors of ministry opportunity that God has set before us so that we can walk through those doors for His glory. We are warned to perceive Satan's specific attacks that are are localized in our community where Satan might have a throne set up. We are to perceive what specific ways he is attacking truth in our community. Above all, for us individually, we are warned to not forsake our first love for Christ and not become lukewarm in our affections for Christ, but to be passionate in our walk with Christ. We're warned that Christ searches hearts and minds and will give to each person according to what he has done. We are threatened as a church that if we are not faithful to the internal journey of holiness and the external journey of gospel advance, he will remove the lampstand. He will go on without this local church. And so we must be diligent and vigilant in all of these themes. And we are individually promised eternal rewards. Many varied rich rewards are promised to those who overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's Revelation 2 and 3. Next, in Revelation 4, we have, I think, the single most important vision there is in the entire Bible, in the entire book of Revelation. It is the central reality of the universe. John, there in exile on the island of Patmos, was given an incredible invitation. He was given an invitation to rise from the surface of the earth and go through an open doorway into heaven and perceive what there is in heaven. So look at Revelation 4, 1 and 2. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice that I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. That throne and the one sitting on it, that is the central reality of the universe. That is the throne of Almighty God. And it's a throne because He is the King of the universe. It is because Satan rebelled against that throne that he was hurled to the earth with his angels, the demons. It is because Adam and the human race, through Adam, joined Satan in his rebellion against that throne that we stand in need of a Savior. It is because of human rebellion against the throne of God, that all of the wrath and the curse and the judgments in this book are poured out on the surface of the earth. It is in being reconciled to God and surrendering to that throne, kneeling before the throne of God, that we are saved. That is our salvation. And so later in Revelation 7, when you have that multitude greater than anyone could count, and they're standing there in white robes, they're all standing before the throne. 
They have been reconciled to the throne. And then at the end of this book in Revelation 22, God's servants are right around the throne of God. The throne of God is there in the city. And His servants will serve Him forever. So that throne is the central reality of the universe. That throne should be the central reality of your life. The kingship of Almighty God. Now around that throne are 24 other thrones representing the 24 esteemed elders, redeemed sinners, saved by grace but put in positions of honor there. And they're continually celebrating God the creator. They're falling down and they're casting their crowns before God. And in Revelation 4, they're specifically celebrating God the creator. He created all things. And they're celebrating and worshiping God the creator. Then in chapter 5, we shift to a focus on celebrating Christ the redeemer. So Revelation 4, God the creator. Revelation 5, Christ the redeemer. So this dramatic heavenly scene continues. And there, John sees in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll, sealed with seven seals. And a mighty angel cries out, Who is worthy to take the scroll and open its seals? But no one is found in heaven or earth or under the earth who is worthy to take the scroll or break open its seals and look into it. And John weeps and weeps because of this. It's a very dramatic moment. And in Revelation 5, 5, through seven, it says, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. And he came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. This is Jesus Christ, the Redeemer. He is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And he's also called the Lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. He is the centerpiece of the sovereign God's plan of redemption in history. He's the center of it all. And not only does he have the right to take the scroll from the right hand of him who sits on the throne... And not only does he have the right to break open its seals and unfold events on history as he sees fit, he also has the right to stand in the center of the throne with Almighty God and share worship as God. Now he is a terrifying lion to all of his enemies as we shall see. It is a terrifying thing to have Jesus as your enemy in the end. But for the rest of the book he's not depicted ever as a lion. It doesn't come up again. For the rest of the book, even if terrifying, dreadful judgments are going on, he is called lamb. And I think that's because he's a lamb for us. He is gentle and loving and kind and our redeemer. And by the lamb, we are not swept away in the wrath and the judgment that we deserve. And so again and again, we have lamb for the rest of the book. Now, he is equally worthy of worship as God the creator. And so at the end of Revelation 5, they all fall down in cascading one after the other, worshiping Jesus. And, and they're saying he is worthy to be praised because he shed his blood. And by his blood, he purchased people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. So there Jesus is worshiped in heaven. Now in Revelation 6, he begins to break open the seals one after the other. And, and we have again that link of 
the sovereignty of God, his actions, then result in certain things happening on earth. That's going to be the story of the rest of the book. And so God acts, Jesus acts, and then things happen. And so as the, the first four seals are broken, one after the other, we have the famous four horsemen of the apocalypse coming one after the other, bringing a series of devastations on the earth, but they're not in any way unique famine and a certain type of government and, and uh, wars and rumors of wars. And Jesus said in Matthew 24, these things are going to come and they're going to come in every generation. So it may well be that that's just the unfolding of, of judgments throughout history, preliminary to the final one, but others have different approaches to the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The fifth seal, however, focuses on martyrs brothers and sisters in Christ who died unjustly at the hands of the devil and his henchmen on earth. And they're pictured up in heaven under the, the, the altar of God and they're crying out for vengeance and justice. How long will it be until we are avenged? And they're told to wait a little longer until the full number of their, of their fellow martyrs is to come in. And God has a certain number of martyrs and that number is going to greatly increase at the end of the world. So they're waiting in heaven. Then the sixth seal really, in some ways, seems to end everything. And in some ways it does. It ushers in the events that will bring the end of the world. But look at it, Revelation 6, 12 through 17. I watched as he opened the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. And the sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. And the whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to the earth as late figs dropped from the fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. And the sky receded like a scroll rolling up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who shall be able to stand? To some degree, the sixth seal goes ahead and tells us the end of the story, the devastation of everything in nature and the end of all things. But the rest of the story is going to fill in details with the seven trumpets and the seven bowls and the events that will come. But I think that question at the end is they're looking for refuge. They're looking for a place to stand. And they don't find one. Just like in the days of Noah's flood, there is no place for them to stand. But it asks the question, when the great day of the wrath of God comes, who will be able to stand? And the next chapter answers that question. Revelation 7 is the answer. There will be a group of people able to survive the wrath of God. And if you're a Christian right now, you should just be thanking God. Because you're no different, I'm no different than any of those that deserve to be swept away in the wrath of God. We are all of us sinners. But there is in Revelation 7 very clearly portrayed salvation for the Jew first, then for the Gentile. And so we have redeemed from every tribe of Israel, 12,000, 144,000 in total. And this is symbolic, but also probably literal. There's other aspects. If you want to know what I think about that, go back and listen to the sermon. But they're clearly redeemed from the Jews. And we have that pattern of Jew first, then Gentile. And then we have the passage that I've quoted probably more than any other passage in the Bible, I would say. Definitely more than any other passage in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 7, 9 and 10, there is depicted a multitude greater than anyone could count 
from every tribe and language and people and nation standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb and they're wearing white robes and they're holding palm branches in their hands and they're saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They are the saved, the redeemed from all over the world. They're the fruit of missions. They are the treasure that Christ shed his blood to win. These are the point. Those people, those redeemed, Jew and Gentile alike, those redeemed are the point of the history of redemption. And note again, they're standing before the throne. They're not rebellious against the throne anymore. They've been redeemed from that. And now they are delighted to serve him who sits on the throne. Now, with the breaking open of the uh, seventh seal, we have flowing from it, I believe, that's the right way to think of it, seven trumpet judgments depicted in Romans, sorry, Revelation 8 and 9. And they are God's judgments poured out on planet Earth, part one. And they result in ecological disasters such as never been seen on planet Earth. Now, I believe the book of Revelation is one of the most difficult books in the Bible to interpret. And I'm giving you my approach. And you've heard my approach. I take a simple, grammatical, historical approach. And where I can, even if the language is symbolic, I still try to see through to a literal, physical prediction of the future. And one of the keys, the hermeneutical or interpretive keys for the whole book for me are the seven trumpets. Because as you read them, they have ecological aspects that have never been seen, ever. And you can't make them symbolic. And so therefore, I believe they're predictions of judgments that will certainly come on earth. Revelation 8 and 9. Because of Adam's sin, part of Adam's judgment, and through Adam, all of us, is a cursing of the ecology of the earth. The, the ground was cursed because of Adam. And it would produce thorns and thistles because of his sin. So also the sins of Noah and his generation resulted in a flooding of the entire earth. So there are ecological effects of human sin. Romans 8 says that the earth is groaning and in bondage to decay. And so it will be at the end of the world. The seven trumpets unleash a series of horrific judgments designed to give sinners on earth a final chance to repent before the end comes. The first trumpet results in fires raging on the surface of the earth, burning up a third of all the trees and all the green grass. The second trumpet results in a third of the sea turning to blood and a third of the living creatures in the sea dying and a third of all the ships that, that were on the sea at that time being destroyed. The third trumpet results in a poisoning of a third of all the fresh water, turned bitter and poisoned. The fourth trumpet results in a third of the sun, moon, and stars being struck, so I perceive it as a reduction in their luminosity, their brightness. The fifth trumpet results in a billowing cloud, I believe, of demons coming up from the abyss who go and actually assault the human race. And torment them. And the torment that they experience is like the sting of a scorpion. And the torment goes on for five months. And during that time, people will long for death, but they will not be able to die. And then the sixth trumpet results in a, in a horrific demonic slash human, I believe, army that sweeps over the surface of the earth, 200 million strong, and results in a slaughter of a third of the population of the earth. It's absolutely staggering. Two and a half, three billion people dying. And despite all of this horror in Revelation 8 and 9, the seven trumpets, we get Revelation 9, 20. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent. 
Now, in Revelation 10 and 11, we have the scroll and the two witnesses, and the, the two chapters together just seem to present a unifying theme of witness, of speaking to the earth about what's happening. And so John is commissioned by a mighty angel who takes his, his stand, one leg in the sea, one le- leg on the earth, and his, his, his head is up in the clouds, and he's a mighty, glorious angel. And he's got a scroll that lay, lays open in his hand, representing the revelation of God. There's certain aspects of that scene that John hears, but he's not allowed to write down, so there's secrets. But there is an open scroll, and he is commissioned, or one could say even recommissioned, with the scroll. He eats it. It's sweet in his mouth, but bitter in his stomach. And he is commanded, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. So John is given a commission to tell the world what is happening, what is going to happen. And that he has done right here in this book. He's told us what's coming, so we can be ready. Then in chapter 11, we have the two witnesses. I'll never forget John MacArthur. He said, if God's looking for volunteers, I'd love to be one of these guys. But these are the two witnesses, the two lampstands that stand in the city where Jesus was crucified, Jerusalem. And they stand before the Antichrist, the beast, who we haven't met yet, but we're about to. And they're there for three and a half years, and they testify quite boldly and clearly about the, the ecological disasters that are going on. And they're able to shut the sky so it will not rain for, for three and a half years. And no one can wage war against them and overcome them, for fire comes out of their mouths and devours their, their enemies. But then in the end, the Antichrist does defeat them. They die. But after three days, they rise again, and they are called up to heaven, and they ascend, the two witnesses. And their purpose is to proclaim what is happening. Now, in Revelation 12, we have one of the clearest depictions, again, in the Bible, of our invisible enemy, Satan. He's portrayed as a, as a massive dragon. He's called again and again in these chapters a dragon. And at the beginning of the chapter, he's depicted as standing before a pregnant woman who is radiant and glorious. And he's ready to devour her child the moment that he's born. And she gives birth to a male child who will rule all all the nations. This is definitely Jesus. The woman represents not Mary, specifically the mother of Jesus, but I believe the best interpretation is Israel, the people of God. And the devil tries to kill Jesus before his time, but he's unable to do it. Jesus finishes his mission and is caught up to heaven. So then the devil... Uh, turns his attention to heaven and he wants to take over heaven and he wars against, uh, against God in heaven but he loses his battle and the archangel Michael and his angels defeat the dragon and his angels and cast him down to the earth. That may have already happened way, way back long time ago or it may have happened then and will happen one final time right before the end of the world. And the devil is filled with rage because he knows that his time is short. And he spends in the rest of the chapter, and indeed the rest of the book, all of his efforts at Jesus' followers. Revelation 12, 17, he directs his attacks on those who hold to the testimony of Jesus and obey the commands of God. And he hates them, and he fights against them. So the devil is depicted as a very powerful foe, but one who is frustrated again and again and again in all of his efforts. And that's a great encouragement to us. Then in chapter 13, we have Satan's greatest weapon against the church, the Antichrist, so we call. The, the word doesn't appear in the book of Revelation. But instead, we have Satan, the dragon, standing by the shore of the sea and calling forth the beast that comes up out of the sea. And this image comes right from the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel stands by a turbulent sea and four beasts, one after the other, come up and they represent world empires. But this time in Revelation 13, there's just one beast. 
one final terrifying empire that comes. And it ultimately gets consolidated to the power of one man ruling over that beast, that empire. And that is what 1 John 2 calls the Antichrist, where it says, you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. And so the beast from the sea is, I believe, that one world ruler. And it says right there in Revelation 13, he was given power to rule the entire earth. So whereas other demonic, satanic rulers, tyrants, have been given only a small chunk of the earth, Genghis Khan, the all-time leader in contiguous empire size, only had one quarter of the earth's surface. Other uh, tyrants had less. But this final tyrant will have it all. He'll have the whole world under his control. And he will dominate it militarily and economically, but even more than that, he'll dominate it religiously. The people will worship him because it appears that he died and came to life again. He is a parody of the Son of God. So this beast is both a political uh, ruler and also a, a religious figure. The last part of the chapter concerns a second figure called the false prophet, the beast from the earth, who uses false miracles and signs and wonders to get everybody to worship the beast. And so there will be miracles done. Do not be deceived. And he, the false prophet, causes everyone on the earth to receive a mark on the forehead or the, or the hand without which you cannot buy or sell. So they're using the economic situation, control, to force everyone to worship the beast. Now, in Revelation 14, we have a timeless warning to planet earth concerning the terrors of hell, honestly. The terrors of the judgment that will come on any who receive the mark of the beast and really anyone that follows Satan in his rebellion against God. And so Revelation 14, verse 11, speaks of eternal conscious torment in the lake of fire, in, the, in, in hell. And this is something we need to be faithful to tell the people of our generation, even if it's not the final, we're not the final generation. Still, everyone that's condemned will be cast into the lake of fire and experience eternal conscious torment. Revelation 14, 11 says, The smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who receive the, who worship the beast and his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. And so we are called on in that chapter to show patient endurance and to labor for the glory of God because we will receive the rewards of our labors. Now, in Revelation 16, we have the final judgments that are poured out on, on the earth. These are parallel to the seven trumpets, the seven bowl judgments, but they are the most dreadful we can imagine, and you cannot imagine the earth long enduring after they are poured out. This is the end. Revelation 16, the seven bowl judgments. The first bowl gets poured out by the angel, and malignant sores come on, this, on the skin of the earth's inhabitants. The second bowl is poured out on the ocean, and this time not one-third of the ocean is turned to blood. The whole ocean is turned to blood, and every living thing in the sea dies. The third bowl, the, the fresh water, is all 100% turned to blood. The fourth bowl, people are scorched by searing heat from the sun. The fifth bowl is an eerie supernatural darkness that comes for a time on the surface of the earth. The sixth bowl opens the way for the kings of the earth to gather their armies and go to a place where the final battle will happen, Armageddon. And the seventh bowl, 
when it's poured out on the earth, results in a massive earthquake and huge hailstones coming down and killing people. Now, in Revelation 16, we have the cumulative effect. Suffering, but no repentance. Revelation 16, 8 and 9, it says, They cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. So I can just stop and say, if, if you have repented of your sins, because you know that you need a Savior, and you have turned away from your sins, and turned in faith to Jesus Christ, then thank God for your salvation. This is a, a miracle of grace in each of your lives. And you should never stop being thankful that God granted to you the gift of repentance and faith in Jesus. Because these people don't repent. Their hearts are only hardened. Now in Revelation 17 and 18, we go back a little bit to look at the concept of the world. Babylon the Great. In Revelation 17, she's portrayed as a, as a whore. And she's dressed in rich robes. She's enticing and alluring. And she's getting drunk on pleasure and on the blood of the saints. She represents the allure, the enticing power of the world system that Satan has set up. And Revelation 18 depicts Babylon as a port city like Tyre or Sidon, something like that, in which ships are coming and bringing their wares and they represent all of the material allure, the wealth and the power and the prosperity and pleasures of this present age, the world system. And Babylon is cast down by the power of God. And the great whore of Babylon is destroyed by the judgment of God. And we have a timeless warning in Revelation 17 and 18. If you look at Revelation 18, 4, it says, Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. Do not love the world or anything in the world. The warning comes. Now, in Revelation 19, we have at last the second coming of Christ. As we saw right from the beginning of the book, behold, he is coming soon. And this is the second coming of Christ. After all of these judgments have come and that the, the uh, armies of the Antichrist are gathered in one place called Armageddon, they're there to wipe out the remnant of God's people on earth. And they think it will be an easy battle, and it will be a very easy battle, but not as they suppose. Because at that moment, Jesus Christ comes from heaven to rescue his bride. And he will not allow her to be erased from the face of the earth. And so he descends. Revelation 19. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. And with justice he judges and makes war and his eyes are like blazing fire. And on his head are many crowns and he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. And he's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he comes to tread the winepress of the fury of, of the wrath of God Almighty. It's the second coming of Christ. And the beast and his armies fight against him, but in a vast understatement, they lose. And, and it's not any effort for Jesus to win that battle. It's not a hard battle for him. He just wins. And the beast and all of the wicked 
that are fighting against him on that battlefield are consigned to the lake of fire. In Revelation 20, Satan is bound for a thousand years. So they cannot deceive the nations any longer. But at the end of the thousand years, it's said that he is released and he gathers an army from the ends of the earth in one final rebellion against Almighty God, but they are defeated. And the devil finally is thrown at last in the lake of fire. And then at the end of Revelation 20, we have the great white throne judgment. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. Judgment day. All of the enemies of God weeded out. They're all gone and thrown into the lake of fire. And all that's left are the redeemed. And so in Revelation 21 and 22, we have at last the goal of everything. The new heaven and new earth, the new Jerusalem. Look at Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. And God will be with them. And he will live with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And so we had multiple studies in the beauty of the new Jerusalem. Of that new world that is coming. The new Jerusalem, the capital city of God's new universe. This radiant, glorious place. And the culmination of it, Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river, the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. And they will see his face. They will see his face. That's the end for me. That's what I'm looking forward to. To see the source of all the goodness and holiness and beauty and perfection there has ever been. The thing that was denied to Moses on the mountain. Told no one has ever seen or can see. At last... We will be in our resurrection bodies and we will be able to see the full glory of God in the face and we will thrive forever and we'll serve him forever. And as we saw last week, the final verse that we focused on, verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. Seven timeless lessons very quickly. First, God the creator rules the world. First most important lesson of Christian theology. There is a king, almighty God. He rules all things for he made all things. Revelation 4.11. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. So every living thing on earth continues to exist for in him we live and move and have our being continue to exist because of the power of God the creator. So therefore, 
Seek him continually in his kingly glory. Submit yourself to his kingly reign every moment of your lives. Make it your goal to please God the king with every fiber of your being. Secondly, Christ the redeemer will triumph gloriously. The second greatest lesson of the book of Revelation is really the first lesson extended to include human sinners. God reigns with and through his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, died on the cross. He shed his blood as an atoning sacrifice for sinners all over the world. And Christ, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, has triumphed already, and he will triumph. Christ, the Lamb of God, was slain and has risen from the dead. And by his blood, he purchased people for God from every nation on earth. He is worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. He is worthy to control history. He actually is history. He is the Alpha and the Omega and every letter in between. The unfolding of the history of the world, even to the end, is in Christ's hands. And at the end of the world, at his second coming, he will slaughter his unrepentant enemies mercilessly and powerfully. And in the new heaven, new earth, the new Jerusalem, Christ will reign with God gloriously and openly. Therefore, trust in him now. Trust in him now. I don't know the spiritual state of all of you, but this is an opportunity you have before these events unfold to cross over from death to life. Trust in Jesus. Repent, turn away from your sins. Ask God to give you the gift of repentance and faith and cross over from death to life while you have time. Thirdly, Satan is a relentless foe who hates God and hates his people who is vastly more powerful than any of us. And in his hand, the whole world does wickedness and evil. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. He is a very powerful enemy. But praise God, he is frustrated and defeated again and again and again by the sovereign power of God. So don't underestimate him. Beware of his power. Beware of the allure and pull of Babylon on your soul. Don't underestimate how powerful this satanic Babylon is. Do not love the world or anything in the world. For everything in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life, that is Babylon. So flee it while you can. Fourth, Christians must overcome by the power of the Spirit. To him who overcomes, to him who overcomes. It says it again and again, Revelation 2 and 3. You individual brothers and sisters in Christ, you have a battle to fight. You have a warfare to fight. It will not be easy for you to get to heaven. You have to overcome. You have to conquer by the power of the Spirit. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the power of God, or paradise of God. To him who overcomes, he will not be hurt at all by the second death. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So by the word of God, by faith in the word of God, you overcome. So, borrowing from Ephesians 6, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. You must overcome by the power of the Spirit. Fifth, a countless multitude will be redeemed. Let's just put it this way. Missions is going to work. It's already working. 
So let's sacrifice to take the gospel to every tribe, language, people, and nation. Let's care about missions. Let's pray for missions. Let's be involved in evangelism right here. But let's care about unreached people groups because people from every tribe and language and people and nation will most certainly be standing before that throne. A countless multitude will be redeemed. Sixth, Satan's servants, the wicked, will be condemned. Paul said he had great sorrow and unceasing anguish because of those who would be condemned to hell. We should ask God to have broken hearts over those who are going to be cast in hell. There is no book of the Bible that so clearly depicts the ultimate end of the wicked as the book of Revelation. Revelation 20:15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Recently, the island of or one of the Hawaiian islands has been overflowed by lava. And I don't know how hot the lava is, but I can't imagine swimming in a sea of lava, what that would be like. And that's what hell is. It's a lake of fire, but in some powerful and mysterious way, very hard for us to understand, God sustains the existence of those who are tortured in hell. The worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It's eternal conscious torment. We need to to feel the burden of that for people who are lost around us and care about that more than we do. Finally, seventh, the present universe is under a curse. Everything you see with your eyes is temporary and it's cursed. But someday a world radiantly beautiful will take its place. The new heaven, new earth will come. And the new Jerusalem will be the capital city of that new empire. And we are going to spend eternity looking at the glory of God in the world in the new world that he, he has made, the earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And we're going to go in and out of the gates of the new Jerusalem and spend eternity celebrating the glory of God. Close with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the book of Revelation. We thank you for its deep, powerful, rich, interlocking themes. We thank you for the way that it glorifies God and glorifies Christ. We thank you for the way it tells us the truth and warns us of what must soon take place. The judgments that are coming are going to come and nothing will stop them. Help us, O Lord, to be vigilant over our own souls, that we be holy and that we not be worldly. And help us to be active in warning our generation of the coming wrath and urging people to flee and find refuge in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.